Take a deep dive into the politics of Charleston, South Carolina, and a trend that may go national next year. I'm Kelly Beeson, in for Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us. Good night. Breaking news is we are just a couple of hours away now from the calm beginning uh, in Israel. Overnight in the United States, early Thursday morning uh, is when the ceasefire officially begins. So the deal brings home 50 hostages from Hamas, all women and children. Israel gets 150 Palestinian prisoners. They will release those and give those to Hamas. This is a win for Hamas on almost every level. There's no two ways about it. And let me show you why. The Israelis right now have the tactical momentum. And you can see the amount that they have moved in here, uh, all in this area, this area, and then all through uh, the Mediterranean side of the Gaza Strip. It's an incredible amount of ground that they have now occupied since the attacks of October 7th. All of this freezes essentially overnight. Sun up on Thursday morning, Israel time, uh, is when the hostilities are supposed to wind down. That means Hamas now has a chance to regroup and rearm. We've talked so much about the tunnel system that exists uh, under northern Gaza that the Israelis have been trying uh, to blow up. Well, Hamas can now start moving men and equipment, ordnance and the like, through this tunnel system to begin to resupply. Also, Hamas is going to steal much of the humanitarian aid that comes across. There's going to be uh, 300 trucks a day that come up. The question is, will it be allowed the humanitarian aid to come north here into Gaza City? We don't know how that will play out in the deal. The other issue here is we go back and looking at the deal. Remember, Hamas releases 50 hostages. Israel releases 150 Palestinians. Four-day ceasefire. Israel knows at the end of those four days, they're going to face enormous pressure from Hamas sympathizers and Hamas friends in the media not to restart the fighting. How after four days do you restart the fighting? Well, the Israelis say they will extend the ceasefire for one day for every 10 additional hostages released. That does give the Israelis a way to say, look, you haven't released any 10 more hostages, the fighting must begin now again. For the families, of course, of the 50 coming home, this is unquestionably good news. But the deal will likely split families, meaning there's wives and children who are going to be coming home to Israel, and their fathers will still be captive in Gaza. Of course, there's no easy decisions in war. Think about that. There's going to be fathers who are inside Gaza held. 190 hostages are still in Gaza. And during this time, we know Hamas will spend a lot of time trying to move them. And obviously, the other thing that has been a point of much contention, the Israelis are going to keep their ground positions here. But the Israelis give up an enormous amount of their ability to overfly Gaza. There was a lot of discussion about how many Israeli drone flights can take place over Gaza to monitor uh, Hamas. We're bringing Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano here, 25 years uh, in the U.S. Army. It's good to see you, sir. Thank you very much. Um, Let's just talk about this tactical reality. How big of a setback for the IDF, for the Israeli Defense Forces, is it to have to pause 
when they have this tactical momentum? Well, here's what I will say. This was a predictable point that the Israelis knew they were likely going to be at at some point. The taking of hostages was a deliberate strategy. So and we know this because of the way it was structured. It wasn't just, oh, gee, let's take some hostages. Part of the plan was to go in and grab hostages because they knew, and the Israelis know because we've been through this drill before, that at some point one of the off-ramps, if, if one or both sides chose to tote that, was to wind down through the exchange of hostages. So the Israelis knew they were going to be in this situation at some point, so certainly in their tactical planning they had to be thinking and debating this. Here's the point, though. You said there's still 190 hostages left in. That, that's a limited pool. Once... Hamas drains all that away, that leverage is gone. So the question really is, is this is just part one of this? How do the two sides decide to play it after the, after the four days are over? What do you make of the international pressure and the timing here, right? That in a way, it seems as though Israel has played their cards as long as they possibly can until they've been forced to make a deal, both the internal pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu and the pressure from the U.S. administration. Well, I think the Israelis knew they were going to be at this point sometime. Remember, they did this in 2014, where they exchanged hostages to get the release of an Israeli service. Yeah, it was, it was a thousand for one with Glad Shalit, but that wasn't during a time of conflict. Right. So, but the, so they knew this was going to happen. So actually, what, what we don't talk about a lot is the amazing progress that the Israelis made in terms of getting into Gaza and setting up in very strategically defensible positions that puts them actually in a very strong place. So, um, so this is, I think, a balance that they, they knew they were going to face. I think what's remarkable, if you want to look at it the other way, is the, the, the access they've gained, the strong positions they're in, and that a second front hasn't broken out. And I think in part because a second front hasn't developed, Hamas is there kind of out on the limb alone, and they know their only path to survival is through wind down. All right, so the, the second front you're talking about is uh, the northern front with Lebanon. Right. There's been some little clashes with Hezbollah. Let's talk about how the position we're at right now as it relates to U.S. troops. We've got thousands of American troops, uh, certainly a couple of thousand who have been under fire almost every day now in Syria and Iraq uh, from these Iranian militias. Does this deal, you think, uh, even if it's not written in the agreement that when you had the United States, Hamas, uh, the Israelis all in Qatar, that there wasn't perhaps some other agreements made with Iran? Well, we certainly don't see any evidence of that on the ground because the attacks against U.S. forces continue and we go through this tit for tat. So I'm actually concerned about is we forget that at root of this is Iran. None of this would happen about Iran. Hamas wouldn't have the offensive capability. They wouldn't have the green light for the attack. The U.S. response was this kind of tit for tat, but also not really giving up on the Iranian engagement and really giving them kind of a $10 billion payoff here. And I'm afraid the, the lesson the administration is going to walk away with is we've managed this conflict, right? The Iranians didn't open a second front, even though Hezbollah and the fourth really didn't want to open a second front. I think the Iranians saw there wasn't a huge advantage to doing that. They've gotten away with this tit for tat. They got their $10 billion. Um, so I, my great fear is the, the, the Biden administration is going to walk out of this. If, if, if it just stays where it is now, low level of violence, right? There's not a second front. The war against Hamas winds down. The Biden team's going to walk away saying, we managed this conflict. And I think that's exactly the wrong message to away. Because they, what they've done is they've empowered all and they've run into a lot of trouble. They made two steps mm-hmm. forward. And, that, and then we chalk that off as a victory? I don't think so. Yeah, well, and also, you think about it from Hamas's perspective. They're still in power. They still uh, have absolutely. their hostages. Iran can still use those hostages as pawns. Iran has diminished the United States throughout uh, the Middle East. It's huge. Jim, thank Thanks. you very much. It's thank good you, to see you, sir. We appreciate it. For hostage families, the next several hours could be the most difficult yet. They're waiting to hear if their loved ones will be returning home. If not, they'll have to wait even longer. For the hostages themselves, they're likely suffering 
from severe PTSD. That's probably an understatement at this point. Such things, even years of therapy, they may not be able to deal with. Because of the Hamas attacks, and think about this, many of the youngest hostages that are going to be released and brought back to Israel do not have living parents waiting for them. Their parents were killed in the attack. The kids were taken hostage. Abby Own, an American living in Israel, still waiting for word on her loved ones, over Caledorn and his children were taken from Kibbutz near Oz. You might remember this video of Erez being carried off by Hamas militants. He is just 12 years old. Sadly, the family learned two of their other relatives were killed in the attack by Hamas, 80-year-old Carmela Dan and her 12-year-old granddaughter. Abby is back with us tonight. I just can't imagine what's going through your mind right now. Thanks for having me back. Um, it's a mixture of anxiety and hope. Um, we look at the notion that there is a possibility of a release of 50 hostages, whoever they are, that gives us hope. And there is a knot in our stomach knowing that if 50 come out, close to 200 don't. And that we need to continue fighting until every single one of them returns. Have you thought about when you see if you're if the kids are among those released, what you're going to say to them? Mm -hmm. I expect that the first thing and the only thing they will need is their mother. And that is what I I know she wants and is waiting for. Um, I believe, and I heard you say this in your intro, that there's a lot of trauma, trauma that we can't imagine. And so I will just take uh, the lead of the children yeah. and be, you know, there for whatever they need. My son is the same age as Ara's. So my, my true hope one day is that they just have time to play and be 12-year-olds. Yeah, and you think about this. I, I can't imagine um, what offer is going through, right? And, and if his kids are ones who are going to be released, he's going to say, if they're together, and who knows whether Hamas kept them together, that he's saying goodbye to his kids in Gaza for them to be released, and he's still held hostage. I mean, these are things that sort of the human brain can't really contemplate even uh, when you hear them. Uh, have you gotten any word about their condition? Um, obviously, Hamas is a terrorist organization that, that roasted babies alive in ovens, so we don't know what condition the hostages were kept in. But have you heard anything about how they might be doing? We don't have any information, right? No, no um, the Red Cross, the World Health Organization, yeah. no one has gotten in to do signs of life or any sort of medical care. I do know that the children in Ophir were not kept together. Uh, one of the elderly women that was released a few weeks back was kept in a room with Ofer, so that was the only sign of life that we'd received. But I do know that part of the process of their return, the first thing they're going to do is get medical attention, which I'm sure they all need. Yeah. Well, and debriefing. I mean, the intelligence that they're going to offer, whatever it is, is going to be um, helpful. Help me understand, and I know every every hostage family is going to have a different feeling on this. There's probably different feelings within, within families. Um, is the pause in fighting worth it? Do you worry that uh, it's going to be harder for the Israeli military to restart and to keep pressure on Hamas? We know it took years. I think it was five, seven years for Galad Shalit to come home. Um, I right. covered that. I remember that. Um, do you worry now that this is this is going to be something that, that the world begins to forget? And perhaps even though bringing 50 people home is is a phenomenal thing, in hindsight, it may not be worth it. 
I have to believe that getting children out of captivity is worth it. I do understand the complexity of the challenge for the army. I have a lot of friends and neighbors who are serving and I understand that it creates an even graver danger for them. And I, that, that that's heavy on my heart truly, but I believe that the Israeli government and all of our governments have a responsibility to return innocent civilians to their homes and their families. And so I'm keeping that paramount. And as to whether or not this will be forgotten, I can tell you that no hostage family is going to stop fighting until every single one of our family members are home. As somebody who used to spend time in difficult places, I, I always thought that the one thing that would keep me alive if I ever did get, did get taken uh, was knowing that my family was fighting for me. And your family, right. you know, and they, they know that. They're, they may be in, in a terrible place, literally hell on earth, but uh, they know you're fighting for them. Uh, we appreciate you right. being with us. Our, our, we'll, we'll, we'll have our hearts with yours over the next few days. Thank you. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you, Ab- thank you Abby. All right, we invite you to sign up for War Notes. Uh, That is our show's newsletter. Comes out every day at about 4 p.m. Gives you a free look at the show. Go to warnotes.com to subscribe. The notes started as our internal email discussion about the war. It's morphed into our discussion about the most important events of the day. It's how we put the show together every day. We want you to be a part of it. You can respond to the email with your thoughts. Of course, you can also join us on social media anytime at Leland Vitter on Instagram or Twitter. That's warnotes.com and subscribe for free. Free fights inflation. Coming up next, we share our tried and true guide to keeping politics from ruining your Thanksgiving dinner this year. You may want to get Uncle Jack to listen to this one. And one argument your family will probably want to have at the table. Which diva do you want to hear less of this Christmas or more of? Mariah Carey or Brenda Lee? It's a surprising debate here in America. We'll see you in a minute. NBC reports only 19%, less than one in five Americans, feel confident that their children's lives will be better than their own generation. That means that 81% are not confident that it will be better. That's the lowest since NBC started asking the question in the 1990s. So here's a bit of advice for the weekend, because a lot of people are passionate about this. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about politics. Turns out most of us don't want to talk about politics at the Thanksgiving table. There's always one, right? It's always one crazy uncle. But a new poll shows 60% of people will try their darndest to avoid talking politics at Thanksgiving. The other 30% are looking to engage. Feel free to not give them dessert. So if you're part of the minority, there's no one better to go to for advice than Alexander Hefner, host of Bread and Butter, new TV series that features conversations with politicians of both sides of the aisle. I guess the question would be, do we have conversations with both sides or do we just ignore both sides and talk about sports and how good the apple pie is? Well, we talk about that as the entry point. I think culinary life can unite us in ways that most other things are incapable of doing. Uh, the, the program you mentioned, Breaking Bread, is designed to be that, to use food as a mode of conversation. Uh, but we have to recognize as Americans that it starts with us as citizens modeling the type of discourse that we want to see. So if we want to see ideologically rigid vernacular you know, viciousness in the dialogue and the discourse governing our country and determining decisions, 
then I suppose we would model that behavior. But I think the vast majority of us want to see our elected office holders find solutions to problems. And therefore, you know, it underscores the importance of civility in the discourse to get to the point of solving a problem. Yeah, let me ask you this. So really around our Thanksgiving table, we're not going to solve any problems. We're not going to bring world peace. We're not going to fix the deficit. We're not going to solve the culture wars. Is it kind of better just to enjoy the food? I suppose it depends on your company, right? It depends on your um, perhaps understanding of their context and whether their resentments overtake their aspirations. The way I like to think about American political life is it's always a rivalry of angels and demons, or as I think of it in a contemporary context, aspirations and resentments. So no, you're not going to solve problems, but if we see representative government as the solution in a democratic Mm. process that values both democratic values and human values, then then the solution can start at home. I'll give you one example. People think that voting is the most universal act of American citizenship. More people pay their taxes than vote. And uh, when we pay our taxes each year, we don't get a thank you from from Uncle Sam. We don't see a pie chart delineating expenditures at the municipal, state, or federal level. But there are things in the spirit of being human that can lift our morale. And I think that can, that can, not necessarily, but it can start with our neighbors and our families and extend then to the town square. Yeah, fair enough. Look, the idea of giving thanks is a uniquely American holiday, right? Uh, as is the concept that our, our rights come from God that we give thanks to, not from uh, government or fellow man. Uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you. Uh, we will all uh, be better for it when we sit around and listen to a crazy uncle say something we disagree with. We'll talk soon. Good to see you. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. It's hard to believe, but Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is almost 30 years old. In the years since its release, Mariah Carey has ruled the holiday music charts, but not this year. She's been bested, not by a newbie, but by a Christmas classic that first appeared, we're going way back to 1958. All right, Brenda Lee was 13 years old when she recorded Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, has now put out a music video, as you saw, for the classic that has pushed Mariah aside. Chris Hahn, host of the Aggressive Progressive podcast, syndicated Chris Hahn radio show, News Nation political contributor, and evidently a Long Islander like Mariah, so you are biased uh, in this conversation. Uh, I kind of view this as the uh, battle between Love Actually, the movie, and Home Alone or something. 
Yeah. Look, I like both of the songs, but I got to side with Mariah, Long Island's second favorite musical act to Billy Joel, who I am going to see in just a little while at Madison Square Garden. Uh, but yes, it is a battle between two great Christmassy movies, right? Uh, Home Alone has that great scene with Kevin dancing around to it. And of course, Love Actually with Mariah. And, you know, look, we're Long Islanders. We love, we love Mariah Carey. Okay, but is it really a Long Island thing? I think about it. She's earned 1.55 million in royalties each time the song was, uh, or she's earned a huge amount of royalties. Uh, 60 million royalties since the song yes. was released. This sort of made her and, and made it happen. Help us understand uh, why do you think somehow All I Want for Christmas Is You has become kind of this universal thing? If How's it a Billy Joel esque unite everybody thing? You know, I think we all love the holidays and we all love love. Neither one of us want to be the crazy uncle around the table from your last thing. I, I stay in the kitchen and cook. That's how I avoid it. Uh, but yeah, if you, it if you is, stay at, you stay uh, at the grill, you have the wine, I, it's great. It's exactly. You know, turkey doesn't really take that much to cook it. You just kind of put it in the oven and leave it. But yeah. I pretend I got stuff to do. Uh, okay. So, uh, but, but look, I think, people, I think people could all agree that we love music, right? And I think music unites. And tonight when I'm going to the Billy Joel concert, I'm going to be sitting in a room where a lot of people disagree with me politically. But when he starts playing Piano Man, we are all going to be singing in unison to that song. And I think music is the one thing in this country that kind of transcends politics, even more than, you know, movies and TV. I, I don't, I, I uh, don't you know, know, You Han. can see the most ardent conservative. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I, I don't know, Han. I, you know, I'm, I'm about to start singing Try That in a Small Town and see what happens if you're going to sing along with me. I'm just saying. I mean, it could happen. <laughs> but this is what I can't figure out, okay? And I, I, admittedly, I did not do as much research about this se- segment as I normally do. But that Mariah has already been topped that we already have charts for holiday songs before Thanksgiving, that seems like the real outrage to me. Yeah. Well, you know, you Christmas comes earlier and earlier each, yeah. day, each year. Yeah, I'm with you. Christmas comes earlier and earlier each year, and that's because it's where uh, most of the, uh, of the retail economy makes its money. So we're going to start talking about Christmas in August soon. Uh, you know, mm. forget about pumpkin spice light lattes return in like mid-August. We're going to start getting peppermint lattes returning in like July. Ugh. Ugh. I don't even like peppermint lattes to begin with. All right. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. Han, somehow you, somehow you always take a segment that you, you and I are agreeing on. We're having a good time. And you bring up something I don't like, like peppermint lattes. But you know what? <laughs> Uh, you're welcome for Thanksgiving anytime. We just want to talk politics. It's good to see you, my friend. Enjoy the show. Sing along and have a happy Thanksgiving. Nice all right? to see you, too. Yeah, you too. Charleston, South Carolina, has elected its first Republican mayor since Reconstruction. How racial politics in America are changing. I can't speak for the entire Democratic Party, but they pay lip service to it. At election time, they, they don't even invest in black vendors to go to those communities, at least not at the level they should. Thank you again for your confidence and support. I promise to do everything I can to live up to your expectations and be the mayor that Charleston deserves. Thank you. Charleston, South Carolina, elected its first Republican mayor since Reconstruction. The Post and Courier down there report race and crime played a pivotal role in the campaign. Charleston is known for being liberal, gay, and black. 
but the trend is changing. We as Americans are frustrated, right? With Biden's age, the economy, the culture, America's standing in the world. That's not really a partisan thing to say. A lot of Democrats are frustrated too. And that's also true among Biden's most important group of voters. Biden's seating support from black battleground state voters. Black voters, 73% Biden to 23% Trump in our poll. That's a 50-point lead. Except Joe Biden, three years ago, won black voters by 75 points in that election. Black voters have long felt and said and showed us that they feel taken for granted by the Democratic Party. All right, Scott Bolden's with us now, former chair of the Democratic Party in D.C., political consultant Sure Michael Singleton with us as well. Really, Scott? <laughs> Republican wins in Charleston, South Carolina. Never thought. I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> I'm still thinking about it. Now, listen, I, I, you know what I'm going to say, right? This is an outlier. It's a year out, and a lot of people are frustrated, a lot of Dems. And you can say whatever you want. <laughs> with Biden, what have you. But it is a year out. Listen, he's 50 points ahead in regard to black voters for Trump. That, that's a negative for Biden because it ought to be 80 or 90 percent. But in the end, the campaign hasn't started yet. Uh, the Democrats are going to remind, especially black voters, hopefully men and women, because the largest block is black women, but they need to pay more attention to black men. Uh, there are groups out there like Black Men Vote that the Democratic uh, fundraisers, Democratic organizations won't financially support. Frank White is the head of that group. Yeah. And I got to tell you, you got to shore up your base, right? Uh, black voters for Democrats are not low-hanging fruit. These, that's the meat of their party, and yet they seem to be neglecting it, always have, and these early polls are showing that they need attention. It's interesting, yeah, right? South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Jim Clyburn represents yeah. just north of there. He's mm -hmm. the guy who brought it home for Biden. Joe Biden in yeah. 2020 in the South Carolina primary mm -hmm. and couldn't do it today. Yeah, I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't do it because voters are, are, are upset. I, I think there's a significant level of disenchantment from all voters in terms of the political process. I, I think when you look at the economy, Leland, and, and I think black voters in particular, particular continue to say, and Scott, you know, we have these conversations in mm -hmm. our familiar circles. Mm -hmm. We continue to vote overwhelmingly. And what are we really getting? I mean, what are we really getting? Over 50 percent. Yeah. Well, wait, but hold on okay. here. Over 50% of black businesses wiped away. When I talk to people in, in my home state of Louisiana, regular everyday black working people, hard blue collar people, they say things haven't improved. Roads haven't improved. Schools haven't improved. Crime hasn't lessened. And yet they continue to vote for Democrats. And so they look at Biden, they look at the but, mayor, they look at the council members, and they say, all of these guys have let us down. Yeah, but so either I disengage or I look at the alternative. Now, for Republicans, we have to have some deliverables to get some of those voters over to the right. Well, you don't have any deliverables. Oh, I'm going to give you some deliverables. No Hold on. I, I, had, I had a graphic made for you. Can you believe that? <laughs> I, I, I this is Thanksgiving, this. a time of good, of, of good grace and I want to see Biden's this. racial equity agenda. This is from the administration. The administration helped bring back uh, black unemployment down to less than 5%, lowest in history. Mr. Biden achieved marijuana reform by pardoning uh, prior simple offenses. His child tax cut... Uh, cut poverty in black communities. Democrats failed to pass meaningful police reforms, pushed to expand voting rights, also stood in Congress. Two black issues that voters have not forgotten. But still, yeah. lower unemployment, marijuana reform, cut, cut child poverty. Kamala Harris talks about race all the time. Mm -hmm. DEI is a huge part of every conversation that they have. What's 
what's not good enough? Well, you're still a year out, one. He's still up by 50 points over Trump as far as black voters are concerned. But, but, but you can't take them for granted. I think these polling, even though they're a year out, those two, the Voting Rights Act and the George Floyd Criminal Justice Act that didn't get done, Black voters, Democrats in 2020 were told, we're going to get those two things done. Uh, George Floyd was a big issue. Voting rights acts was a big issue. And the Biden administration hasn't delivered on it. And I predicted over the last two or three years, black voters are going to remember. Black voters are going to vote Democrat because there's nothing for them in the Republican Party. Wait, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You say they're going to vote. You're going to say they're going to vote Democrat. Vote are they going to vote? Here's, I mean, that, that's the uh, question. Me, and, 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 <laughs> you beat me to it, man. And, 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 if they, and, and if that's they a don't, plus for the Republicans. It is, because we know 2020 was one on the margins when you look at the battleground states. But I will say this as a conservative. We on the right have not done a very good job articulating why black voters should vote for Republicans. It is not enough to say that Democrats are filling on a plethora of issues. Yeah. What are you going to offer as an alternative? And I have been articulating this to the GOP as well as the Trump campaign. We need to roll out a plan and follow up on that plan legislatively to try to submit some support with African Americans as we once had six, seven decades ago, Leland. Yeah, and the party, the, party really, the party isn't really doing that. And I would encourage I feel, the party to do that. I feel, though... Uh, we have three esteemed here. gentlemen here. Well, two esteemed gentlemen and then me here discussing this. <laughs> I think we need to listen to the great political analyst Cardi B <laughs> on this issue. Take a listen. Yeah, Joe Biden's talking about, like, yeah, we could fund two wars. We could fund two wars. Talking about we don't got it, but we got it. Like, we're the greatest nation. No, we're not. We're going through right now. Like, say it, say it. We really going through, uh, we, we, we really, 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 really are right now. 19% of Americans, only 19% say they're confident that life's going to be better for their kids than it is for them. It's yeah. an all-time low from 1990. I guess, Scott, I started by saying Americans are frustrated with Biden's age, with the economy, uh, with the culture, with America's standing in the world, that frustration isn't just a Republican thing. Yeah, no, it, it isn't. It's a Cardi B when thing. The, when the when the Generation <laughs> Z, right, and even the Millennials look at their political landscape. Their choices. And in the end, elections are about choices, right? Democrats are banking on the fact that Trump's going to be on the other side. And when you really laser in on those choices, they're going to fall the Biden, including the independents. The problem African-Americans are having, in my opinion, is that life's not getting better for them in education, in their community, in law enforcement, in civil rights and voting rights. And yet we're spending billions or hundreds of millions to support our allies. You took a tenth of that or 20% of that, right? And invested in African-Americans and jobs, job training and entrepreneurship. This is very practical politics. And young people are reminding us that our life's not getting better while we're sending millions across. That sounds like Trump and a Republican narrative. Watch that. Investing in the black community and making it better, that's how you nurture and take care of your black voters that are your big base, yeah. and we're just not doing it. I mean, about 20 look, look, that's been my point to the Republican Party. There's an opportunity here, particularly with black men, and as I've advised the GOP, and I've even advised some folks working for some of the candidates, you need to roll out a plan that specifically targets very unique things for black men, and you could see yeah. a three to four percentage point increase. That will make a difference look, in those yeah, battlegrounds. We, we saw it in South Carolina. First states, yeah. that could make a difference. Three, three or four percent of the difference. blacks vote in right. Pennsylvania and Michigan math, and Georgia. The math yeah. is there, Leland. Yeah. It's yeah. possible it's if we do the work. We're if not going to let you get to that map, though. Thank you, We're not going to let you get to it. We're going to fix this. Okay. I'm serving turkey later, fellas. Come on. Coming up next, most American Thanksgiving tables, sadly, and this is true, 
have an empty chair because of COVID. Yet there is so little interest in figuring out where COVID came from. There may be a reason that our government doesn't want to tell us the answer. That next. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. ...lives and killed 1,153,000 Americans, either at your Thanksgiving table or someone you know tomorrow. There will be a missing empty chair because of COVID. Yet the federal government still shows zero desire to figure out where it came from. That might be because they already knew and knew before the pandemic. Vanity Fair reports secret warnings about Wuhan research predated the pandemic, meaning people in our government were warning about what was going on inside the Wuhan lab. Senator Ron Johnson is here, member of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. I think reasonable people can all agree it came from China. It came from the Wuhan lab. It was a lab leak. The question I keep trying to figure out is why is it that the United States government doesn't want to mention that? Well, people like uh, Peter Fauci, they don't, they don't want to uh, disclose how much they funded this research for years. Uh, they circumvented uh, you know, all the laws that we had in place, supposedly, against biological weapon development, uh, against uh, gain of function, uh, just became pretty much a... Uh, Government onto himself didn't didn't really care what the rules were. Really didn't care what presidents told him to do. He just went about and did his, his thing. Circumvented uh, funded research. Uh, uh, had cutouts uh, like uh, Eco Health Alliance, uh, who funded uh, uh, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars, to the uh, Wuhan Institute for Virology. Uh, it, there's there's so much that uh, this government is, is uh, covering up right now, and they don't want it uh, revealed. All right. So this was Dr. Fauci and I, uh, this is going back all the way in June of 2021 when we were asking some of these questions. Take a listen. The Wuhan lab is a very large lab to the tune of hundreds of millions, if not billion dollars. Right. Take that. The grant that we're talking about was $600,000 over five years for an average of about 125000 to $140,000 a year. So now you're making extrapolation that we sent in. Uh, No, sir, I'm not not making any extrapolation. No, sir, no, sir, sir. I'm not making any extrapolation. I'm simply saying the fact of the matter is is that so much of what we were told as Americans about what we knew from the Chinese was based simply on taking their word. Right. Hmm. All right, now dot, dot, dot to the Vanity Fair reporting. If you want to know what's going on in a closed country, one of the things the U.S. has done is to give them grant money. Um, This is Aisha M. George, Executive Director of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, nonprofit that advises U.S. government on biodefense policy. This would be the question. 
Are we to believe that we had this plan to figure out what was going on in China by giving them grants of money that we were essentially getting by selling our treasuries back, treasury bills back to China, and then the Chinese were going to tell us the truth? Well, that's apparently one of the lame excuses they're going to make here. But, uh, you know, Anthony Fauci, he was uh, responsible for tens of billions of dollars of grant money every year flowing into our universities. Uh, we know how China has infiltrated our universities to steal our intellectual property. He was well aware of that. He was well aware of the uh, cooperation between uh, personnel at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and people like Ralph Barrick at the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hills. Uh, he understands how many hundreds of millions of dollars that uh, Ralph Barrett got for this dual-use uh, bioweapon type of technology. I, 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 I get all this. I mean, it's all a big this, this is what I can't figure out. This is what I can't figure out, though. We've got blue-ribbon commissions for everything. Look, we had the January 6th committee to investigate things. We had the 9-11 commission. We had a commission about baseball, for God's sakes. Who is Who is protecting Dr. Fauci and others? Why even, look, even the Republican House can't seem to get its act together to have a commission with subpoena power and investigate this. The hundreds of universities, the thousands of scientists that are getting grants to the tune of billions of dollars every year from the federal government. It's, it's the same game that's being played with the climate change, global warming. Uh, the federal government funds the research and the scientists and the universities are loyal to them because they don't want the spigots being turned off. This is exactly what uh, President Eisenhower warned us about in his famous military industrial complex speech. The second warning was the fact that all these all science was now being driven by grants from the government. And he warned us that uh, those types of government grants are going to be more important to those scientists than actual science. And we would become basically governed by policy be dictated by a scientific and technological elite that is exactly what has happened it's threatening our freedoms it's threatening the very survival of the of the world in terms of this dangerous game function research that that we have been up to our eyebrows in for decades yeah and in some ways uh, in i know that you've done research on this and others have that covid covid was sort of very mild in terms of what could have leaked out uh, of one of these labs and what it could have done to the world and what the next thing could do. Senator, it's good to see you. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Thanks for spending time with us. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your listeners as well. All right, sir. Next, the key to peace and love and happiness this holiday weekend. We'll show you how Harry and Sally, well, solved one of the greatest family debates. And I never wanted anyone to say to me, how come you never take me to the airport anymore? The airport is clearly the beginning of a relationship. That's why I have never taken anyone to the airport at the beginning of a relationship. Why? Because eventually things move on and you don't take someone to the airport. And I never wanted anyone to say to me, how come you never take me to the airport anymore? Huh. When Harry met Sally answered so many of life's great questions like the selfless act of getting yourself home from the airport this holiday season. Let's be honest. Nobody wants to leave their house after the show, drive through bad weather and traffic to the airport, wait in the cell phone lot, argue with the curbside drop-off parking monitor just to pick you up. Get an Uber. The Wall Street Journal agrees with me. No one should pick you up at the airport. Snarled roads, parking spaces, long waits at the cell phone lot, 
We make the people we love endure a lot when we visit. The one person who disagrees is my father. He insists on picking up and dropping off everyone, which is loving, but stressful. My sister seems to disagree with me in a shocking turn of events. Okay, go ahead. You took my argument right out from under me. I was going to say our father, who's been happily married to our mother for 50 years, never once has told our mom to get an Uber. And maybe maybe that should be a lesson for you about how to have an incredibly happy 50-year <laughs> marriage is that you should never tell the girl to get an Uber. Harry but that was would the- not be for me. That's the whole point of when Harry met Sally. Set expectations so long as everyone in the relationship knows. I'm not, I'm really, boy, I feel like I really walked into this one. Um, well, then okay. set the expectation is that you go pick people up. I mean, really, like not to bring it all in, but we're lowering expectations across the country for everything. Let's raise our expectations a little bit. I don't think it but, Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Look. And I think reason, okay, reasonable people can disagree because Rachel and I have a feeling about this, right? That I don't like people picking me up at the airport. It stresses me out if my flight's late, if I want to hit Chick-fil-A before I get an Uber. Like, the, the fact that someone's waiting just stresses me out. Get into, a, get into an Uber, okay? Get, make some calls, catch up on emails on the way to wherever you're going. You arrive refreshed. You haven't had to have some conversation about why the cell phone lot was packed. It's so much easier. Fine, then you don't have to get picked up at the airport. I would like to get picked up at the airport. It's a sign of love. I mean, Lucky, one of the most popular movies of all time, Love Actually, that's like, that's what the whole movie's about, is the pickup scene at the airport. So are we not going to have that anymore? Are we not going to have people with signs and flowers and the love and the happiness that you see when people get to pick up their loved ones? Like, it's like you want romance gone from You know, we should, I didn't, I didn't think fly. about this. We should have started with that scene from Love Actually, where everyone's uh, talking about uh, seeing and meeting old friends, new friends. It was the opening lines about renewing your faith in humanity when you see people who haven't seen each other in a long time hugging at the airport. Okay. All right. I'm going to try this one more time, which is Die Hard set the expectations. Um, It was a problem in Die Hard, too, as you might remember, uh, going to pick your friends up at the airport. That's for a different time. Liberty, looking forward to spending Thanksgiving with you. I know you won't be picking me up at the airport later. That's okay. You're forgiven. Lots of love. I will be at dinner. I I still love you. I did brave two hours in the grocery store today, though, for your list. So I have to get some credit here. Yeah, lots of credit and lots of love. I'll see you a little bit later. This Thanksgiving here at News Nation, we give thanks to you, our viewers, without your trust and time. Nothing we do or says matters. That's true. We hope your Thanksgiving centers around fun, food, family, love, and football. Invariably, though, right, it's going to turn to politics. Tell your family about News Nation. Tell them why you trust us, why you think we're fair why you choose to spend part of your evening with us. And then we invite you to fight inflation. Nobody likes inflation. Fight inflation by signing up for War Notes. It's free. You can give it as a present 